0: Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. Come to democracynow.org on November 8th to watch Democracy Now!'s three-hour midterm election night special. We'll be covering the key congressional races, which will determine the balance of power in Congress. Plus, we'll look at gubernatorial races and ballot initiatives around the country. Join us to hear the voices of activists, analysts, grassroots leaders discussing how the movements on the ground will go forward following these critical midterm elections. You can watch online at democracynow.org, starting at 9 p.m. Eastern, Tuesday, November 8th. From New York, this is Democracy Now!, It is not just affirmative action that is under consideration today, it is the trajectory of our future as a democracy. The Supreme Court's conservative majority appears set to end affirmative action in college admissions. We'll hear excerpts from Monday's oral arguments and get response. Then New York has agreed to pay a total of $36 million to settle lawsuits on behalf of two men wrongly convicted and jailed for decades for assassinating Malcolm X in 1965.
1: But people
2: know I didn't do it. Nobody ever thought I did it. Just like people. Our people never thought I did it.
0: We'll speak to an attorney for the exonerated men and to an independent historian who helped spark the reopening of the case. And as Israel holds its fifth national election in less than four years, we'll speak to Jan Eglund of the Norwegian Refugee Council. He's calling on Israel to end its decades-long occupation. He'll join us from Jerusalem after a trip to Gaza.
2: Gaza is waiting for the next uh, hostility. It cannot continue like now with an unresolved, totally unresolved political situation here.
0: All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The United Nations World Food Program's warning of a worsening humanitarian catastrophe after Russian President Vladimir Putin said he would halt a deal granting safe passage of food and fertilizer exports from Ukraine to the rest of the world. The U.N. says since July the program's indirectly prevented about 100 million people from falling into extreme poverty. On Monday, Putin said Russia is not abandoning the deal but would temporarily stop participating in
2: it so we are not saying that we are ending our participation in this deal no we are saying that we are suspending
0: Russia's suspension from the Black Sea Grain Initiative triggered a steep rise in food prices. It came after Russian warships in the port of Sevastopol in Russian-occupied Crimea were attacked by drones Saturday, and as Russia's military accused the British Navy of blowing up the Nord Stream pipelines in September, cutting off supplies of Russian gas to European markets. The United States and South Korea have begun massive war games off the Korean peninsula. On Monday, the two nations opened Operation Vigilant Storm, a five-day joint drill involving hundreds of warplanes and thousands of troops. North Korea condemned the war games as, quote, rehearsal for invasion and proof of hostile policies by Washington and Seoul, unquote. This comes as the U.S. says North Korea is preparing to carry out its first nuclear weapons test since 2017. Elsewhere in the Pacific region, China slammed plans by the United States to deploy six nuclear-capable B-52 bombers to northern Australia, warning the move threatens to spark a new arms race. This is China's foreign ministry spokesperson, Zhao Lijian.
3: Such a move by the U.S. and Australia escalates regional
1: tensions, gravely undermines regional peace and stability, and may trigger an arms race in the region. China urges parties concerned to abandon the outdated Cold War zero-sum mentality and narrow geopolitical
0: mindset. The Supreme Court heard oral arguments Monday in two cases that aim to end race-conscious admissions decisions by colleges and universities. During nearly five hours of arguments, the court's far-right supermajority appeared sympathetic to arguments that the admissions process violates the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution and the Civil Rights Act. This comes as at least nine states have already chosen to end consideration of race in university admissions. We'll have more on the Supreme Court in the fight over affirmative action after headlines. In California, prosecutors have filed federal and state charges against the man accused of breaking into House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's home and assaulting her husband Paul Pelosi with a hammer. Investigators say 42-year-old David DePapp told them he planned to take Speaker Pelosi hostage and intended to break her kneecaps in order to see her, quote, wheeled into Congress, unless she told the truth about, quote, lies told by the Democratic Party, unquote. DePapp faces up to 30 years in prison on a federal assault charge and up to 20 additional years for attempted kidnapping. He also faces a slew of state charges, including attempted murder and assault with a deadly weapon. San Francisco District Attorney Brooke Jenkins spoke Monday.
4: What we also have learned is that the defendant brought to the location of the Pelosi residence a second hammer, as well as zip ties, rope and a roll of tape. What is clear based on the evidence that we have thus far is that this House and the Speaker herself were specifically targets of the defendant.
0: Paul Pelosi remains in intensive care in San Francisco after surgeons repaired his fractured skull and serious injuries to his hands and right arm. In Arizona Republican gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake drew laughter from a friendly crowd Monday after she joked about the attack on Paul Pelosi. Lake was speaking at a campaign event in Scottsdale.
5: It is not impossible to protect our kids at school. They act like it is. Nancy Pelosi, well, she's got protection when she's in D.C. Apparently, her house doesn't have a lot of protection. But—
0: Donald Trump Jr. has also mocked the attack on Paul Pelosi. On Sunday, he retweeted a photo of a pair of underwear and a hammer caption, "'Got my Paul Pelosi Halloween costume ready.'" Former President Donald Trump has asked the Supreme Court to block the release of his tax returns ahead of a Wednesday deadline to turn them over to the House Ways and Means Committee. Trump's request for an emergency order came on the first day of opening arguments in a criminal tax fraud trial in New York Supreme Court, where the Trump Organization faces charges of paying top executives millions of dollars' worth of off-the-books compensation for 15 years. President Biden's accused oil and gas companies of war profiteering after Russia's invasion of Ukraine led to high energy prices and surging profits for companies like Shell and ExxonMobil. On Monday, Biden said the oil industry should pass profits onto consumers and lower the cost of fuel. If not, he said, they may soon face a higher tax rate on windfall profits.
3: Give me a break. Enough is enough. Look, I'm a capitalist. You've heard me say this before. I have no problem with corporations turning a fair profit or getting a return on their investment and in innovation. But this is remotely what's happening. Oil companies, record profits today, are not because they're doing something new or innovative. The profits are a windfall of war.
0: Robert Weissman, president of Public Citizen, called a windfall profits tax long overdue, but said it should not be made dependent on more oil and gas drilling. Weissman added, quote, More investment in oil drilling will deepen our dependence on fossil fuels when the worsening climate catastrophe demands we speed the transition away from fossil fuels, he said. The White House says President Joe Biden will attend the COP27 U.N. climate summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, on Friday, November 11th, as part of a larger overseas trip that will also take him to Cambodia and Indonesia. Biden's trip comes as human rights defenders continue to urge the release of all political prisoners in Egypt ahead of the climate summit. Among them is the human rights activist Al Abdel Fattah, who has been on hunger strike for over 200 days, protesting the horrific conditions he faces in Egyptian jail. His sister and human rights advocate Mona Safe said on social media her brother is stopping his 100-calorie daily intake and will also begin a water strike starting Sunday, which marks the beginning of COP27. That's November 6th. On Facebook, Safe wrote, quote, This means if no urgent intervention happened, Allah will die before the end of COP27. These are the actions of a man who's had enough after nearly nine years in arbitrary imprisonment, she said. Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg is not attending COP27, accusing the summit of misleading the public into thinking polluters are committed to combating climate change. She said she will not attend a greenwashing summit. Back in the United States, border patrol agents on Monday fired pepper balls at a group of Venezuelan migrants who were leading a protest along the El Paso, Texas, Juarez, Mexico border after they were denied entry into the U.S. and blocked from seeking asylum. This is Yanira Hernandez, a Venezuelan asylum seeker and protester who witnessed the assault.
5: They pulled out guns and started shooting. Things shouldn't be like that. We are not animals. We are human beings. We want to go to the United States to work, not to do bad things. We've spent several days here sleeping like animals. The Mexicans are the ones who have helped us with food, clothes, shoes and blankets.
0: Earlier this month, the Biden administration started expelling Venezuelan asylum seekers to Mexico under an expansion of the Trump-era pandemic policy, Title 42, which has blocked at least two million people from seeking asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border in violation of international law. In news from Britain, police in Kent are being urged to investigate a Sunday attack on a migrant center in the town of Dover as an act of terrorism. The man suspected of throwing at least two petrol bombs at the migrant center was found dead shortly after. He reportedly died of suicide. At least two people were injured after a fire broke out at the center, which is used to process asylum seekers who've taken on the dangerous journey to cross the English Channel on makeshift boats in the hopes of refuge in the U.K. After the attack, about 700 asylum seekers were moved from Dover to the Manston Detention Center in Kent, which advocates say is catastrophically overcrowded. They've since denounced squalid and inhumane conditions at the facility. Meanwhile, immigrant justice and human rights advocates continue to denounce hate speech used by far right British officials against asylum seekers and migrants. On Monday, British Home Secretary Suela Braverman said England was facing an invasion.
5: The British people deserve to know which party is serious about stopping the invasion.
0: In Michigan, the former Grand Rapids police officer who killed Patrick Leoya, a 26-year-old Congolese refugee, will face trial on second-degree murder charges. Video of Leoya's killing showed former officer Christopher Schur, a white man, wrestled Leoya to the ground, kicked and hit him, attempted to electrocute him with a taser and pinned him on his stomach before pulling his pistol and firing a single round into Leoya's head at close range. And in Brazil, thousands of truckers have blockaded roads across Brazil in support of far-right incumbent President Jair Bolsonaro after his narrow defeat to Luis Inácio de Lula da Silva in Sunday's presidential runoff election. Bolsonaro has so far refused to concede defeat, has remained silent, raising fears of political violence. Meanwhile, there are signs of a growing rift within the Bolsonaro family. Since the election, the Brazilian first lady, Michelle Bolsonaro, and her husband have stopped following each other on Instagram. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hi, Juan.
3: Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world.
0: The Supreme Court heard arguments Monday in two cases that aim to end race-conscious admissions decisions by colleges and universities. During nearly five hours of arguments, the court's far-right supermajority indicated it's open to ruling that the consideration of race in the admissions process violates the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution and the Civil Rights Act. The two cases involve Harvard and the University of North Carolina. In both cases, plaintiffs argue the school, schools' admissions process discriminates against white and Asian-American applicants by giving extra preference to black, Latino and Native American applicants. In the Harvard case, the plaintiffs argued Asian-American applicants face specific discrimination. This is Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, the only conservative justice of color, questioning the lawyer representing University of North Carolina, Ryan Park.
4: I didn't go to racially diverse schools. Um, But there were educational benefits. And I'd like you to tell me expressly when a parent sends a kid to college that they don't necessarily send them there to have fun or feel good or anything like that. They send them there to learn physics or chemistry or whatever they're studying. So tell me what the educational benefits are.
0: Meanwhile, the Supreme Court's first black woman justice and newest member, Katanji Brown-Jackson, recused herself from arguments in the Harvard case because of her ties to the university. But she was a prominent voice in the first half of the arguments involving the University of North Carolina. She repeatedly asked about the harm in considering race as a factor in admissions to ensure a diverse student body. Here she questions attorney Patrick Strawbridge, who argued on behalf of so-called Students for Fair Admissions, a group founded by white conservative lawyer Ed Blum, who has brought multiple cases before the Supreme Court that challenge race-conscious
5: policymaking as unconstitutional. I'm hoping to get your reaction to this hypothetical. The first applicant says, I'm from North Carolina. My family has been in this area for generations since before the Civil War, and I would like You to know that I will be the fifth generation to graduate from the University of North Carolina. I now have that opportunity to to do that, and given my family background, it's important to me that I get to attend this university. I want to honor my family's legacy by going to this school. The second applicant says, I'm from North Carolina. My family's been in this area for generations, since before the Civil War, but they were slaves and never had a chance to attend this venerable institution. As an African American, I now have that opportunity, and given my family family background, it's important to me to attend this university. I want to honor my family legacy by going to this school. Now, as I understand your no-race-conscious admissions rule, these two applicants— would have a dramatically different opportunity to tell their family stories and to have them count. The first applicant would be able to have his family background considered and valued by the institution as a part of its consideration of whether or not to admit him, while the second one wouldn't be able to because his story is in many ways bound up with his race and with the race of his ancestors. So I want to know based on how your rule would likely play out in scenarios like that, why, excluding consideration of race in a situation in which the person is not saying that his race is something that has uh, impacted him in a negative way, he just wants to have it honored, just like the other person has their personal background family story honored. Why is telling him no not an equal protection violation?
0: Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson, in Oral Arguments Monday. The Supreme Court's rulings in the two cases are due next year, likely in June. For more, we're joined by two guests from Washington, D.C. John Yang is president and executive director of Asian Americans Advancing Justice, was one of the speakers at a rally for affirmative action outside the court Monday. We're also joined by Fatima Graves, president and CEO of the National Women's Law Center. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Fatima Graves, let's begin with you. You were tweeting nonstop yesterday. Talk about the significance of the arguments and where you think the supermajority is going right now.
4: Well, I have to begin with the fact that this is the fourth time the Supreme Court has heard what is essentially the same question. And before this year, each time they had come down with real clarity that you could consider race in the context of a holistic admissions process. What is different this time is the dramatic shift in the composition of the court. And that's why we went into the argument worried and skeptical that the three new justices would join their conservative colleagues. Um, despite the fact that there's clear precedent to rely on and despite the fact that there is a broad uh, case to be made, as you heard Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson make, of the not only the ongoing discrimination but the historical discrimination that these programs, in part, help to address.
3: Well, 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 Fatima, could you talk about specifically the the Harvard case? What happened at the lower court, at the district court level, and uh, and uh, how this case wound its way up to the Supreme Court?
4: Well, you have to begin with the fact that there is a very conservative lawyer who has brought these set of cases named Ed Blum. Um, And Ed Blum has made arguments that the affirmative action program at Harvard inherently discriminates against the Asian-American community. It's really important to actually understand that Ed Blum is not a student and Ed Blum is uh, not Asian-American himself. In fact, one of the things that you saw both outside of the court and um, participating in this case is Asian-American students naming the many benefits that they receive from participating in in diverse education programs. Um, and and i will tell you along the way what what courts have found um really importantly is two things one, that the, that the admissions programs considered race not as sole factors, not as only factors, but as one of many factors as part of a, a program that was holistic. So it's, it's a part of the background and experiences and interests and talents that people put on display when they're, when they're seeking to be admitted into schools. But the second thing that I think was really important, both in the Harvard and the UNC case, is that the the courts along the way reiterated the initial holding from Baki that was um, that 20 years ago you had come again in Gratz and Greta, where the court said that consideration of race as one of many factors to create a diverse student body that schools have a compelling interest in doing so. So if the court rejects that idea, rejects the idea that race actually is one of many factors factors that a court consider in its admissions program we will see dramatic differences in um, admissions processes. We already have states that have had that experiment, and we know that it has not only reduced the number of students of colors who, who have attended those schools, but it also has dramatically changed their experience there. It has left them more isolated, more subject to additional discrimination. And so we will have effects not only for the students who are in those classes, but for the generations to come, for the workforce, for the community around it, for how people' feelings of belonging actually endure to and their connection to their community.
3: And I'd like to bring in John Yang as well, president and executive director of Asian Americans Advancing Justice. Uh, uh, John, the prior uh, Supreme Court cases have focused on. Uh, how affirmative action uh, is, uh, is to the detriment of, of, of uh, white students. But uh, now we're uh, in this set of cases, the, also the issue of how uh, uh, allegedly uh, affirmative action affects Asian-Americans. Why did you feel your organization had to uh, get, get involved in this case and your perspective on how whether Harvard was indeed discriminating against uh, Asian-Americans?
6: Well, thank you very much, Juan, for that question. And let me pick up on something that Fatima mentioned, which is Ed Blum, when he lost the case in Fisher, he explicitly said, I need to find Asian American plaintiffs. Now, why he did that was we knew this. He would try to use us as a political wedge to drive us between other communities of color. Look, if there was actual discrimination against Asian Americans at Harvard or UNC, my organization would probably sue. But when we looked at the evidence, it was clear to us that Asian Americans were not being discriminated against. The policies in place at Harvard and UNC, this note using race conscious admissions, allowing race to be considered, benefited Asian Americans. So we were actually involved in the case on, beha- on the side of Harvard, representing Asian American, what are called interveners, so that they could tell their stories in court about how affirmative action how race-conscious admissions actually helped them, and how having a diverse campus at Harvard really benefited their educational process.
0: I want to go back to the oral arguments Monday. U.S. Solicitor General Elizabeth Prologer argued Supreme Court precedent has been key to increasing diversity in higher education, which then shapes representation in the workforce. She gave this example of gross disparity in representation—
5: The second category I would point to is the one I've already referenced, demographics. I think that that can be relevant. Again, not to set a quota, not to identify a precise numerical threshold, but in recognition that when there are extreme disparities in representation of certain groups, it can cause people to wonder whether the path to leadership is open. And if I could, maybe I could just give, a, I think, a common sense example of that that I would hope would resonate with this court. The court is going to hear from 27 advocates in this sitting of the oral argument calendar, and two are women, even though women today are 50 percent or more of law school graduates. And I think it would be reasonable for a woman to look at that and wonder, is that a path that's open to me, to be a Supreme Court advocate?
0: Fatima Gossgraves, you tweeted about this, your response. And talk about what this means, the people that would be brought forward, their stories.
4: You know, I I thought that the Solicitor General's argument was very powerful here. It's not a secret that the Supreme Court bar is one of the least diverse uh, places. Very few women, hardly any women of color, argue before the court in any given term. And when we take a similar uh, example of what you might see and experience in some settings, in the brief that the National Women's Law Center filed Uh, in the case, we talked about how you could have some programs where uh, a student of color or a woman of color in particular might be the only uh, student like them. And that isolation has real-time effects, not only because of uh, the leadership questions that the solicitor general name, but also it it reminds you that you are the own. You might have to by yourself represent your whole race when you are the own. You know, so there are both the many benefits from diverse. Institutions, but the real harm of segregation and isolation that could come from uh, a a decision that overturns, uh, Grutter, it, it it really is startling.
3: And John, yeah, I'd like to ask you as as been mentioned previously, uh, this is the fourth time in twenty years that the Supreme Court has tackled uh, this issue. Uh, Obviously, there was the Bakke decision, there was the University of Michigan case. Uh, Why has affirmative action been so contentious uh, and uh, been forced, uh, been brought up to the highest court in the land so often in uh, in recent decades?
6: Well, at the end of the day, I think people are still uncomfortable, certain people are uncomfortable with the fact that we are still grappling with race issues in the United States. Now, let's be clear. It's only been about 60 years since the Civil Rights Acts of the 1960s were passed. So for people to suggest that we are in a post-racial society, that we could be somehow race blind, I think it's just being naive. Now, obviously, there are those that want to bring up these cases because they want to enforce this notion that we shouldn't look at race, that race shouldn't matter. But we know that it matters. In everyday life, we know that it matters. And so when we're talking about educational decisions, admissions to colleges, certainly the notion that students should be able to talk about their race, their ethnicity, what that meant to their upbringing and the challenges that they faced, as well as the legacies that, that they are trying to honor, should be important to that process. One of the things that we find very disturbing is if race-conscious admissions are not allowed in colleges, then it really would be silencing a large group of students, students of color, in terms of talking about their own experiences. That's why we think these cases matter, and that's what we want to drive home to the courts.
0: I want to thank you both for being with us, John Yang, president and executive director of Asian Americans Advancing Justice, and Fatima Goss Graves, president and CEO of the National Women's Law Center, both speaking to us from Washington, D.C. Coming up as Israel holds its fifth national election in less than four years. We speak to Jan Eglund, head of the Norwegian Refugee Council, calling on Israel to end its decades-long occupation. Stay with us.
4: Young man, young man, got the heart of a lion and the drive of a wild horse. Young man, young man, better watch how you step when you step off the front porch. Your granddad done went through hell, don't take for granted.
3: One man, one man, put his life on the line for the folks trying to break One man, one
0: man. American Dream by Willie Jones. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan González. Israel's holding its fifth national election today in less than four years. The election could result in former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu returning to power, even though he's currently on trial for corruption. The election comes at a time of an increasingly deadly Israeli crackdown on the occupied West Bank, where the Israeli military has been carrying out near-nightly raids. At least 125 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank so far this year, including dozens of children. Meanwhile, Amnesty International is calling on the International Criminal Court to investigate Israel for committing possible war crimes in Gaza during its deadly assault in August. We go now to Jan Eglund. He is secretary-general of the Norwegian Refugee Council, joining us from Jerusalem. Jan, you've just returned from Gaza. Can you talk about the conclusion of your trip in both the the occupied territories in West Bank and Gaza?
2: Yeah, I've been back now to uh, Israel, the West Bank and Gaza, where I have traveled for 45 years. And I must see, say it's, it's one of the bleakest visits I've had, in in part because there is no peace process at all. There is no reconciliation between the two neighbors. And there is more settler violence against palestinian civilians there are more house demolitions of palestinian homes and there are more of our aid programs aid projects aid structures that are being demolished by the occupying power i don't think people outside of this uh of of this region really understands that, that we've had now 55 years of occupation 15 years on the siege of gaza Uh, where Gazis, two million of them, half of them young people, feel they are living in an open-air prison. They cannot leave. They cannot enter at will. Uh, They have no uh, real livelihoods prospects if they are young, etc., etc. So hopelessness is what you feel at the same time as there is also more and more violence.
3: And Jan Edelin, I wanted to ask you specifically about the demolitions you mentioned. Uh, there have been 700 structures uh, demolished by the Israeli authorities just since January of this year in the past uh, 10 months, uh, even though uh, there is a uh, continued uh, worldwide condemnation of Israel's uh Uh, attempt to seize more and more land uh, of the uh, Palestinians, but yet Israel has surfaced no consequences from its continued flouting of that condemnation.
2: You're absolutely right. Hundreds and hundreds of structures are houses. These are homes, really, are are, are leveled. Uh, Many of them were built by Norwegian, Swedish, German, uh, British aid money, very vulnerable people, Bedouins and, 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 and single mother-held households, etc. What the occupying power says is that they are just doing city planning, they're just doing city restructuring and so on. In effect, what you see is that there are more and more settlements, illegal settlements, which means that in violation of international law, you transfer your own population, to colonize uh, other land, and the uh, the population that lived there is being transferred. Today, I met with Fatima, seventy years old. She is having is, is here in East occupied East Jerusalem. She's been living in the same house since she was born. Uh, her her father uh, started to rent it in nineteen forty eight from the Jordanians. Today, in her backyard, there is a tent set up by the extremist right-wing politician called Itamar uh, Ben-Gvir. He is the one who will be elected today on a potentially very large profile of extremist rightist parties under the rubric uh, uh, religious Zionism. He brings in settler youth from the illegal settlements on the West Bank. And I saw numerous films from footage from from cameras of these settlers beating up uh, Palestinians. They hurt this Fatima, 70 year old. She was bleeding. Her her two sons came to rescue her, and not and not the the the, the mafia, the the, the violent the, uh, settler youth were not arrested. Her sons were arrested because she, they were defending Fatima in her own uh, her own. Uh, House. You can't make up this kind of an injustice that is before our eyes here in occupied lands.
3: And you mentioned uh, the conditions in Gaza for those people who are not familiar uh, with the life for the two million inhabitants of Gaza. Could you talk about uh, some of the worst atrocities occurring there? But the Gaza, of course,
2: is is not a place where there are Israeli soldiers anymore. They were withdrawn, but Gaza is under siege. They, the The border is closed, shut, and you have to go through an enormous kinds of of, of barriers, uh, checkpoints, etc., controlled by Israel to be able to enter. There is a, there are two, one from Egypt, one from Israel, uh, uh, entry points, and there is a, another one where. Uh, trucks can come and, and go. Those uh, places are often shut down. That's why we say there is a siege. The fishermen, and, and uh, of course, there is a, 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 a great dependency on aid now in Gaza. So people try to feed themselves by being fishermen. They've been doing that for thousands of years. They can go three miles into the ocean. If they go further, the fishermen, Israeli Navy would be arresting them or or, or even sinking their boat. They cannot go by air to this uh, this area because Israel is controlling the area completely. This is siege, this is an open-air prison. Gaza, two million inhabitants, is two-thirds of the municipality of my hometown of Oslo in Norway.
0: So, Jan Eglund, um, in this year, 120 Palestinians have been killed so far, making it the deadliest year since 2015. Uh, for the first two weeks of October alone, six Palestinian children killed, uh, bringing the death toll of children, those under the age of 18, to 28 this year. Um, can you talk about whether you see this changing uh, with this election that's about to happen? But most importantly, how this will end? What is the Norwegian Refugee Council calling for?
2: Well, I mean, it may change to the worse. By the election today, because the parties that are are, are likely to make big progress are all parties who are against reconciliation with their own neighbors, the Palestinians, against a peace process, and in favor of of illegal settlements, colonization of of occupied land, and and the displacement of Palestinian families from their ancestral land. So I think it it could get worse, but I'm not giving up. I met with the uh, the, the, the the group of uh, European uh, consul generals and ambassadors here in Jerusalem today I think there is in 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 Europe a great support for helping Palestinians in their hour of greatest need on the Palestinian side the political leadership are split they are incoherent there is a big divide between the west Bank and where help held by the Palestinian Authority and and Gaza, where it's Hamas, and so on. So, of of course, the Palestinian side is weak. The stronger side is Israel, and there is one force that can really convince Israel to do what is in their interest, namely to make peace with their neighbors, and that's the United States, but the United States is nowhere to be seen as a political force for a peace process.
0: When President Biden met with the Israeli president, uh, Isaac Herzog, at the White House um, last week, um, during public remarks, neither of them mentioned the Palestinians. Yet, Israel receives—is um, one of the highest recipients of military aid in the world from the United States, receiving billions of dollars. Your message to President Biden, Jan Eglund, what this means? You
2: know, well, my message to the Biden administration— is perhaps even reinforced by my message to the U.S. Congress. I mean, if you're friends of Israel, I'm a friend of Israel. I I I've I known many Palestinian uh, Israeli prime ministers. I studied at the Hebrew University here. Been a friend of Israel for for in my entire life. If you, the United States, would be a friend of Israel tell them to not undermine their own security by enraging uh, Palestinian youth beyond belief, by humiliating them, grabbing their land, making it possible for them to have livelihoods in places like Gaza, and, 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 and killing children five times more frequently than, than the total number of fatalities on the Israeli side of all ages, military and civilian. I mean, you can't make it up the kind of, of an injustice that is before our eyes here. And that's not in Israel's interest, because they need to live in peace and security with their neighbors.
3: And Jan Eglin, I'd like to uh, broaden the discussion. Uh, Last month, your organization, the Norwegian Refugee Council, was awarded the Hilton Humanitarian Prize, which is considered the world's largest uh, annual award for a nonprofit. Congratulations, first of all. But I wanted to ask you, there are more people on the move, refugees uh, from their home countries across the world than, than ever before. What uh, what do you see as some of the areas that are deserving attention when it comes to refugees that are not getting the kind of attention among uh, uh, the media and the citizens of the advanced uh, industrial countries?
2: Yeah, indeed, we have broken that ceiling that I didn't believe we would break, I hope we would never break in my lifetime, which is well over 100 million people now displaced by violence and conflict in the world. You go back 10 years and it was 45 million. Now it's 110 million. The Ukraine war alone has displaced 14 million people, half of them refugees in the rest of Europe, half of them uh, basically displaced within Ukraine. ukraine is a horrific war i'm going there on my third visit this year now uh, uh, after after this of course ukraine is getting a lot of attention and it's also getting a lot of our assistance and, and 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 there are resources going there in the shadow of that war it got worse in gaza and the west bank where i am now it got much worse on the Horn of Africa, Somalia, where we will have a famine. We haven't had a famine now for decades. We'll probably have an epic biblical famine there. It's got worse in, in Syria on both sides of the front lines, in Yemen on both sides of the front lines, in the, in the Congo, etc. So I'm nervous, really, uh, for, 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 for the world turning inwards, looking, Becoming more, more, uh, US is becoming more polarized, more inward-looking, more nationalistic. Uh, So are so many European countries, and we are, in a way, we Norwegian Refugee Council and all of the other colleagues, left often a little bit alone in the front lines where there are more people in need than ever before.
0: Jan Eglund, we want to thank you for being with us, Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council, speaking to us today from Jerusalem. Next up, New York has agreed to pay $36 million to settle lawsuits on behalf of two men who were wrongly convicted and jailed for decades for assassinating Malcolm X. We'll speak to an attorney, as well as an independent historian who helped break open this case. Stay with us. Resolution by John Coltrane. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. New York City and New York State have agreed to pay a total of $36 million to settle lawsuits on behalf of two men who were wrongly convicted and jailed for decades for assassinating Malcolm X in 1965. Last year, a judge tossed out convictions against Muhammad Aziz and the late Khalil Islam after finding serious miscarriages of justice. An investigation by the Manhattan DA's office and the Innocence Project found that prosecutors, the FBI, the New York Police Department, omitted key evidence around Malcolm X's murder. Muhammad Aziz spent two decades in prison before being released on parole. He was interviewed by ABC earlier this year.
7: People knew while you were there that you were one of the men convicted of killing Malcolm. Were there threats because of that? To me, no. Yes, sir. No.
2: The people know I didn't do it. Nobody ever thought I did it. Just white people. Our people never thought I did it.
0: The other man exonerated was Khalil Islam. He died more than a decade ago, in 2009, but his family filed suit on his behalf. The settlement comes two years after Netflix released a documentary titled Who Killed Malcolm X?, which raised new questions about the assassination. This is the trailer.
2: We're not brutalized because we're Muslims. We're brutalized because we are black people in America.
1: Of this man's courage to say this stuff, it changed the entire trajectory of my
6: life. He was becoming a figure that transcended the nation of Islam.
1: It was politics that really started the rift between Malcolm and the nation.
3: The white man is the greatest hate teacher. That-
1: Was definitely afraid of someone like Malcolm X. What kind of democracy is that? People had to start wondering if something happens to Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm becomes the leader, it's over for all of us. And uh, just then, the gunfire went off. Malcolm's death never sat right with me. The
2: investigation was a failure. Asking who's guilty is a dangerous question to ask.
1: What is the real story? It's in the history book. Leave it there. Leave it alone.
5: Elijah Muhammad told everybody, do not raise a hand against Malcolm X.
3: He didn't have to give the order. Someone would take care of it. The FBI should have known.
1: Why doesn't someone want to get to the bottom of this? They never had any intentions of seriously investigating that assassination. That is my mission. I'm not going to stop until I get justice. Because the official count of who killed Malcolm X, it's not true.
0: The trailer to the 2020 Netflix documentary series, Who Killed Malcolm X? That last voice, Abdurrahman Mohammed, is joining us now, independent scholar, historian, journalist, writer, and activist, widely regarded as one of the most respected authorities on the life and legacy of Malcolm X. We are also joined by David Shainis, civil rights and wrongful conviction attorney. He represented Muhammad Aziz and the family of Khalil Islam, who were exonerated this year and just settled for. million. David Shainis, let's begin with you. How did this negotiation take place? What was acknowledged?
7: Well, thanks for having me, Amy. First of all, the the first settlement was with the state of New York that happened a few months ago. Um, The recent news was the settlement with the city of New York, which happened just last week. Um, Fortunately, and this is the exception, not the norm, both— of those entities wanted to come to the table immediately. They were both serious about trying to resolve these cases, and it was important to resolve them quickly. As you know, this case had a 50-year injustice uh, that lingered and lingered and lingered. So for the government to resolve these cases immediately was essential.
3: And, and David, in terms of the— uh oh. The, the size of the settlement, uh, how was that reached uh, by New York City? Because there was always, uh, obviously, uh, the questions about to what degree the New York City Police Department was aware of the assassination. They, the Infamously, they, they had an undercover agent, Gene Roberts, who was part of the security detail. Uh, so to what degree did this— uh, the, uh, the responsibilities of, of New York City, not just in terms of the convictions of the men, but of the role of the New York City Police Department uh, in Malcolm's death come into play?
7: A great question, because there are a lot of questions about who was responsible for this injustice. You have the FBI, of course, uh, who hid a, a mountain of information that would have exonerated these men. But the New York City Police Department's hands were just as dirty. Uh, they had, as you said, um, an undercover police officer in the ballroom who witnessed the assassination, who could have corroborated the trial testimony of Mujahid Halim, who tried to exonerate these men, said they had nothing to do with it. I don't know these men. Uh, but the NYPD sat on that information for decades.
0: I want to go to another clip to introduce our next guest um, from the documentary Who Killed Malcolm X?
3: In the 1960s, the FBI launched one of the biggest counterintelligence operations in its entire history. Black
2: people everywhere
3: today are fed up with the hypocrisy practiced by whites. And they kept a very close watch on Brother Malcolm. And if something isn't done, and I'm afraid that you will have a racial explosion, and a racial explosion is more deadly than an atomic explosion.
1: Jay Gowoo, the director of the FBI, was definitely afraid of someone like Malcolm X. Malcolm was being surveilled. He was being followed. His phone was tapped.
5: If you look at the investigation of Malcolm X... It's when he becomes a public figure for the Nation of Islam that the Bureau starts taking more of an interest into his subversive rhetoric. You seem to be
2: dissatisfied with everything. Just what do you want? I'm not dissatisfied with everything. I'm just telling you that the Negroes themselves should take whatever steps necessary to defend themselves.
6: The
7: FBI had multiple high ranking, paid human informants in the leadership of the Nation of Islam. Could it have been that FBI informants were
6: actively involved in Malcolm's murder? Almost certainly so. Some
3: members of the Nation of Islam became willing tools, but they were the puppets. The puppeteers were... In charge of that whole situation.
0: And in this next clip from the Netflix docuseries Who Killed Malcolm X, our guest, Abdurrahman Mohammed describes footage of the scene outside the Audubon Ballroom after the 1965 assassination of Malcolm X.
1: The coroner ruled the cause of death to be the shotgun pellet. It wasn't the wounds from the shooters after the shotgun that killed Malcolm X. The cause of death was ruled to be the sort of shotgun.
7: Rally attendees seized one of the gunmen as he tried to escape the autobahn.
1: There is
7: archival
1: film of the the scene outside the autobahn ballroom right after the assassination. Policemen engaged in a brutal tug of war. Save you a see a scuffle between the police and the crowd that was trying to beat down Talmadge Hare, the only one of the assassins to confess. And there's a man standing on the edge of that crowd who looks a lot like William Bradley, mm-hmm. who, according to Hare, fired the shotgun that killed Malcolm. And he's feigning like he's part of the brawl. And in that kind of misdirection, he steps back and then you see him walk across the frame very calmly, closing his coat, and he just walks away. This is how he got away. If William Bradley is the man who pulled off that shotgun and took the life of Malcolm X, and I can prove it, I want to confront him face to face.
0: That's Abdurrahman Mohamed, independent scholar, historian, journalist and activist in the docu-series on Netflix, Who Killed Malcolm X? And Abdurrahman Mohamed is joining us right now. So $36 million has been awarded to uh, these two men who served decades in prison, Mohamed Aziz, who is alive, and Khalil Islam, who died over 10 years ago, so he did not know—he was never vindicated in his lifetime uh, to the public. And then you are describing who, in fact, did kill Malcolm X. Um, Talk about your response to what has now taken place, and are the people involved—are any still alive?
1: Uh, to my knowledge, no. They are all deceased. There's really including no J. Edgar Hoover? Including J. Edgar Hoover. And uh, uh, I tend to believe that that's the reason why uh, we've been able to get this far in terms of whatever uh, kind of justice we've been able to attain. It's because it's so far along in the history that most of these personalities uh, are long since deceased,
3: and uh, Abdul Rahman Mohammed, uh, uh, clearly uh, Louis Farrakhan, the head of the Nation of Islam, is still is still uh, around. And he famously, I think it was in 2000, in a 60 Minutes interview, uh, claimed that um, he did not order the assassination of Malcolm, but he admitted that he created the climate uh, in which uh, the assassination took place. I'm wondering your, uh, your sense of to what degree the actual perpetrators or intellectual authors of this crime uh, were ever held to justice. Well, you know, let me set the, the record straight
1: here. He did quite, quite a bit more than that. I mean, he was at the mosque, number 25, the mosque that we documented was the, uh, you know, the epicenter of the murder plot against Malcolm X. He preached there that afternoon, the very afternoon that Malcolm was delivering or was set to li- deliver his talk at the Audubon Ballroom. So, um, you know, what he knows and what we can prove that he knows, you know, those are two different things. But he, he did quite a bit more than create the climate. Uh, he was, um, as we say, he was in the, the nest of the, of the plot.
0: And were you ever able to confront him, Abdurrahman Muhammad?
1: Well, uh, you know, our producers uh, reached out to him and uh, he declined to participate in the project in any way, viscerally so.
0: And what do you think is most important for the world to understand right now? Because clearly Malcolm X was a world leader. He was a human rights leader in what took place and the role of the FBI in this.
1: Uh, well, we should understand that uh, Malcolm's legacy is—it uh, looms larger today than it did even in his own lifetime. Uh, Part of the reason why it has taken so much time to uh, attain some measure of justice in this case is because, at the time of his assassination, um, the general public uh, essentially took the position of the government, you know, his, his own people, were after him, and they finally got him, case closed. You know, uh, there, there weren't too many people identifying with these wrongly accused brothers. Uh, it was it, He was not treated in the same way as uh, Dr. King was, and he was not accorded the same uh, respect and, um, you know, uh, acclaim, as I should say, that Dr. King uh, uh, was able to garner. And so, um, his, his case— uh, just faded to black, but now his star is—looms large on the international stage, and he is regarded as an icon and a hero and, and a great revolutionary. And so, for that reason, uh, we we learned that, uh, in the passage of time, uh, the,
3: the true measure of a man is revealed. We only we only have about a minute left, but this thirty six million dollar settlement comes on top of 20 million that New York state agreed to pay. Why was uh, we can see the FBI, the federal government, the New York City police. But why uh, uh, what was the culpability of the state in all of this?
7: So uh, uh, was, was it? Thank you. Go ahead, Dave. Oh, sorry. i Yeah. Just to clarify that one Um the total between the city and state is thirty six million. so it was twenty six oh, from the st- from the city and ten from the state that came previously. And the reason the state paid is because New York State is one of few states in the country that has uh, a law that compensates people who are wrongfully convicted and imprisoned. Uh, and that's a, a major movement of you know my partners at the Innocence Project and other organizations to get similar laws passed in the rest of the country.
0: Well, we want to thank you both for being with us, uh, David Shainis, civil rights and wrongful conviction lawyer who represented Muhammad Aziz and the family of Khalil Islam. And thank you to Abdurrahman Muhammad, independent scholar, historian, journalist and activist who helped break open this case, didn't let it go for decades. That does it for our show, Democracy Now! currently accepting applications for a video news production fellowship and a people and culture manager. Learn more and apply at democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman, with Juan González. Stay safe.